Marissa, my wonderful wife, and I um, had the privilege of purchasing the home that we are in now about three and a half years ago. We're here in Irvington, and um, it was a very interesting experience. Maybe it's a caricature, maybe you can relate to this, but when we went into the house to, to look at it at first, my wife is thinking about all the things it could be, where to put this, and how beautiful that would look, and we'll hang this here, and oh, those floors, I love those, the cabinets are so great. Um, I walked in very different. I walked in like, how old's the furnace? When's this roof got to be redone? And like started looking at all the things that are going to cost me money over the next 10 years and, and eyeballing these types of things. One thing that I really liked about it <clears throat> is that it had just uh, had a new foundation put in, right? Like the, 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 the foundation of the home had just been like redone and you, you can see and do your research on the, the people who do this right. Um, it, the house is more sturdy after that than it was originally. And so I loved being down in, in, the, in our basement and seeing a new foundation. Like that was, that was really cool, especially in an old home like these Irvington homes are built in the early 1900s. And so I actually started nerding out and doing research. Like how did they do this? How did they like hold up a house while they redid the bottom of it? You know? And, and, and it was kind of cool. It was, they, they bring in hydraulic systems and hold the house in place and hold it up. And then they re-pour the base, the foundation of the house. Because of cracks or deterioration that had set in, the house can actually move and lean. And it can, be, can be condemned because it's not safe to live in. So this house that, that we are in right now had a brand new foundation set. New concrete poured, it has these really cool, awesome, sturdy, and strong metal pillars, and it is stronger now than when it was built in 1926. That really, really got me. Our passage today is going to show us how our Jesus, how Christ himself, repaired and, and fixed, reset, if you will, will, the foundation of first century disciples. Because as we're going to see, Cleopas and this unnamed disciple with him on the road to Emmaus had a very misunderstood, they had cracks, deterioration in their thinking about the Messiah. They had a janky, condemned foundation. And maybe like some of us today, we don't just have cracks in the foundation. We don't have a basic deterioration going on. We are just off on the whole point of scripture. We miss Jesus and the point for which he came. Luke 24, this, this beloved and, and lengthy passage toward the end of Luke here, I think has two takeaways for us. Preaching something this large is really hard, and so I'm actually just going to, you heard the whole text uh, read so wonderfully by Dan. I'm just going to pull out a couple things for us this morning that are going to help us maybe get our foundation repaired. The cracks and deterioration and our thinking about the Messiah and thinking about the Bible straightened out so that hopefully we leave today with a stronger foundation than when we first walked in. And so the two takeaways that I want you to get that I think this passage has for us today is this. The first one is that Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures and is the very center of human and cosmic history. That's not overstatement. Jesus is the very fulfillment of all of the scriptures, and he is the point, the center of human and cosmic history. But the second thing I want us to see 
is that we're going to, to watch Jesus conquer and overcome the doubts of his followers. And he's going to do so through testimony of his resurrection appearances. That's what he does to these first century disciples, and that's what he's going to do hopefully for us this morning, is conquer and overcome our doubts, and he's going to do so in the same way he conquered and overcame their doubts. It's through the eyewitness testimony of his post-resurrection appearances. He's not dead. He's alive right now. And so I'm just going to walk us through those two things make some comments along the way. There are certainly going to be things in this lengthy passage that are not covered in the next 20 minutes we have together. So feel free to talk to me afterwards or send me an email if there was anything that I didn't cover. But the first thing, fulfillment. Fulfillment. What I mean by that is that Jesus is the point, he's the climax, he's the center of the redemptive story of the Bible. Look with me beginning in verse 13. That very day, that is resurrection day, the Lord's day. He's uh, on the road to Emmaus. We're not exactly sure where Emmaus is. Many of your study Bible uh, reconfigurations puts it just west of Jerusalem, about seven miles. We're not exactly sure. But two disciples are on the way. Cleopas and an unnamed person are on the way, and Jesus is just going to join them. He, he, he walks with them for these seven miles. We're not sure who the other disciple was. We're not even sure who Cleopas is. He's named here, and that's it. Um, it. It could be a wife. could be husband and wife. could be Cleopas and a buddy. Or, imagine with me, this is a long section, the longest narrative piece of Luke. There's a lot here. And you can probably feel it even as Dan was reading, but there's a personal tone to this story, the Emmaus story. You can get it in the English, but it's definitely there in the original Greek that has led many scholars, this does not originate with me, to at least wonder if the other guy is Luke. Luke, who, who does so much biblical theology, so much proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, that you've got to wonder if Luke was privy to these two Bible studies that Jesus led as to, oh, maybe that's how Luke is real, real good at connecting Jesus back to the Old Testament. He was there for the Messiah-led Bible study of the Old Testament. Maybe. Look at verse 16. As they're walking... Jesus with Cleopas, an unnamed, maybe Luke, guy, a disciple, person, who knows? Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is odd, maybe. It's like, it's Jesus. How did you not see Jesus? Well, we're told, the verb there is very strong, they were kept from seeing. It's not just that they had their heads down and they didn't look at who it was. It's not like it was a really bright day, although it might have been. They were actually kept from seeing who he really was. God, for some reason in his providence, kept them from seeing Jesus. And so perhaps Luke is trying to communicate, as one scholar uh, put so well, quote, that we cannot see the risen Christ, although he be walking with us, unless he wills to disclose himself, close quote. From the outset here, 
I think there is a wonderful application for us. An application that I think ought to, to move us to worship and to wonder. And that is this. That if you're sitting in this room and you see Jesus and recognize him as glorious and beautiful and wonderful and worth following, although imperfectly, with everything you have, you're saying, Jesus is my guy, I'm giving my life to him, and I am following him. It's because God did that. You didn't. You didn't make the scales just fall off your eyes and, oh, now I see Jesus is the Messiah. That was a work done on you. You see Jesus because God opened your eyes and opened your heart to see Jesus and helped you take the first step of faith to say, I'm following Jesus. I'm giving him my life. That is a work of God on us. It's a miracle. We were spiritually dead and now we're not. What happened? You were just a really good team player that God had to have on his squad? No. The spirit brought you to life. And the spirit that brought you to life is the spirit that is going to keep you all the days of your life. You see Jesus. Verse 18, they keep going on and Jesus is like, why are you guys bummed out? Verse 18, I love this, Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that had happened in these last days? I, I love that language because if you recall, this is Passover week. When Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday and, and rose triumphantly on Sunday, Easter Sunday, the, the, the time leading up to that was the Passover. So if you're a Jewish person spread out across the land, you traveled, if able, to Jerusalem. The city literally swelled thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands. The estimates get up to somewhere around a million. That could be more than, in fact, we're not exactly sure. But what we are sure of is the city of Jerusalem absolutely swelled to full. And I don't think Cleopas here is using hyperbole. The news of Jesus, this man who died, and the moment he died, there was an earthquake, the sun went black, and the temple split open, traveled like wildfire. I think they're actually saying, they can't see it's Jesus, but they're, they're, they're truly saying, you are the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened. What a silly question to be asking us. That's why we're bummed out. Do you not know what just happened in Jerusalem? And so if those numbers are right, let's play a little game here. Let's say the city swelled to, to just shy of a million. That is more than the entire population of Indianapolis. Everybody over the weekend knew what happened. That's weighty. Are you the only one who does not know what happened there in these days? Now, of course, it's Jesus. He knew exactly what happened. It happened to him. But what happens is in our passage on the Emmaus Road, and then later when Jesus does his like magic appearing trick in the room back in Jerusalem, he shows them how this was the point all along. I, Jesus, am the entire point of your Bible. You haven't even been reading the prophets right because they talked about me. Look at verse 27. This is with Cleopas and Luke, question mark, um, and Jesus. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Bible study. 
And later, scan down to verse 44 with me. He's in, they're back in Jerusalem now. Jesus appears there, freaks them out, but then he does a Bible study with them. Verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's a huge statement. Because what he just said there is the entire Bible centers on me. Jesus is, this is the one place in our New Testament, although it's abundantly clear, but this is the one explicit example in the New Testament to the entire Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is what we call the Old Testament. It is their Bible at this moment. And so when Jesus is talking about all the scriptures, there ain't no First Timothy yet. First Peter hasn't been written. The Gospels haven't been written. He's talking about their Bible, Genesis to Malachi. Actually, it ended in Chronicles it's just different in our layout, but it's the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And it was broken into three pieces, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah, the law, is the law of Moses, the first five books. The prophets are the prophets, minor and major prophets and some other things thrown in there. And then there was like a kitchen drawer. You know that kitchen drawer that you all have that like there's batteries in it and tape? You're like what is even going on in this drawer? That's the writings. Just everything else goes in that one. And the writings, the largest book in the writings was the book of Psalms. And so that third category, the Ketuvim, was often just called the Psalms. The Psalms and everything else. So Jesus is saying, Moses, prophets, Psalms, all of it is about me. And it's all fulfilled in me. To use the words of Pastor Tim Keller, Roger and myself are reading a book by Keller called Preaching, Communicating the Gospel in a Age of Skepticism, I believe is the subtitle, with our music leaders up here who are communicating the gospel just as much as Roger and I are, so we're reading a book about preaching by Keller, but he has this to say in the opening chapter. Jesus made clear to his disciples that unless you understand who he is and what he came to do, you can't understand either God's salvation or the Bible itself. Feel the, the weight of that. Unless you understand Jesus and what he came to do, you have no idea about God's salvation and you cannot understand any of the Bible because it's all about Jesus. He is the interpretive key that opens to us our understanding of the scriptures. That's what the Bible is. I, I like this, this, this other quote from a, a pastor in the Pacific Northwest area as to what is the Bible. What is this book that is so dear to us? Why do we preach from it and have it scattered throughout our liturgy? Why do we read it every day, most days, personally at home? Well, because, quote, the scriptures are a library of writings both divine and human, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. The scriptures are a unified story written over hundreds of years by different people, all of it divine because God is behind it. Human because it's written by human hands, and so you see differences between Peter's writing and Paul's writing. Paul loves run-on sentences, amongst other things. 
They're just different. You see the human aspect too, but it is a divine book, but what's key is that it's a unified book telling one story that leads us to Jesus. The Old Testament is on its tippy toes, leaning over toward Jesus. Or my personal favorite is a hero of mine by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He tells the the story of of a Welsh minister, an older minister, critiquing a younger one. I actually put this on the cover of your your, uh, worship booklet. And so if you wanted to follow along with me. I'm scared in, in reading this to you because it now puts Roger and my preaching under magnifying glass. But hopefully we do this well or I wouldn't read this to you. Charles Spurgeon tells of a Welsh minister who spoke to a younger minister about his sermon after hearing it. It was a very poor sermon, he said to the young man. Will you tell me why you think it a poor sermon, came the response? Well, because, said the Welsh minister, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We're not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what is in the text. The exchange continued. Do you not know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old divine. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? and then preach a sermon running along the road toward the great metropolis, Jesus Christ. And, said he, I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Now, some of you are like, what in the world are you talking about? I don't, I don't care about preaching and how to, how to deliver sermons. That's the same mission when you're at home tomorrow reading through Leviticus. That is your goal when, like me, maybe you're just drudging along through Chronicles. There is a road to the city of Scripture, which is Jesus. We misread the Bible if we don't get to Jesus. Now that sermon, that, 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 that quote can certainly be overdone. Okay, you can get to Jesus in illegitimate ways. You can start getting there and it's like, no, no, that, no, no that's, that's weird. The author wasn't thinking about that. But there is a legitimate road to Jesus because all of the scriptures are headed toward Jesus. It's all about him. He is the fulfillment. The second thing I think our text has for us has to do with our doubts my doubts, your doubts. We've seen the first major takeaway from Luke 24 that Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures and and he's the very center of human and cosmic history. But we're going to see the second takeaway that I think is extremely applicable for us today. And that is, as I said at the beginning, that Jesus intends to conquer and overcome our doubts through the testimony of his appearances. There's at least two doubts I see in the passage. Look with me at verse 21. But we had hoped, right, why why are they upset? We we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
This is a doubt regarding the mission of the Messiah. A doubt that goes like this. A defeated Messiah can't redeem. We saw him hang on the cross. We saw him breathe his last. We saw a sword go through his side and blood and water gush out. That was not winning. They misunderstood why Jesus came, and they misunderstood what he was doing on that tree. Doubt. But there's a second doubt here. It's a doubt that Jesus specifically calls doubt later on, beginning in verse 37. This is when he appears to them, scares them. They're startled and frightened. They thought he was a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's me. Look, I have a body. I am resurrected and glorified. See me. This is a doubt regarding the resurrection. Resurrection from the dead, as we will be. A doubt that could go like this. Can a dead person really come back to life? Doubt. What Jesus does, and what's remarkable about this text, is he moves toward them. Jesus moves toward the doubters, not away from them. Now, he may move toward them sternly. Look at verse 25. Oh, foolish ones. Literally. You stupid ones. I love it. You are stupid. You, you're misreading the entire Bible. Did, did you not know that it was about a suffering servant to come? Foolish ones. It's communicating the idea, how dull are you? Have you read the Bible correctly ever? It's, it's harsh. It's, it's, it's strong. But then... It also is done pastorally by Jesus, where he moves toward them tenderly in the room back in Jerusalem, the second appearance to the disciples. He moves toward them in their doubts. Sometimes, and Jesus is all wise, it, it takes a stern rebuke. Come on, foolish ones. But then other times, like in the upper room or wherever, whatever room they're in when he appears to them, it's a, it's a, it's a tender. Guys, come on, like... Let me show you from all of Scripture. I feel like I've had that, that rebuke of the Lord both times in my doubts. Like, eh, foolish one. But then I've also had pastoral, tender Jesus be like, hang on. Let me help you in your unbelief. But the cure for doubts in both cases, whether it's, oh, foolish ones, or, hey, why do doubts arise in your heart? Let me show you from the Word how I am the fulfillment. The, the, the cure for both of them is the Word of God. The doubt of Cleopas and the mystery disciple was, let me show you and interpret to you, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, how all the scriptures concern me. The cure for their doubt with the resurrection was, let me show you from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, how all of it must be fulfilled. It was necessary for me. Imagine, can you imagine being there, whether on the road or in the room? Hearing Jesus interpret to you all of the scriptures, where do you think he took them? Certainly maybe to Genesis 1. You thought it was about creation. It's about me. I made it all. I was there. I'm the word that was with God, and I'm the word that was God. Turn over a couple pages. Genesis 3, you thought it was about sin. It's about me, Jesus. 
And in verse 15, you may have read, there wasn't verses in those days, but you know, in verse 15, you may remember, a seed from the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. That's me, Jesus. But you also need to remember that it was necessary for me to suffer and die. That's only on page three of the Bible. Did you not hear that the serpent is going to bruise my heel? He's going to hurt me. He's going he's to get me with a blow, but I'm going I'm to kill him. I'm going to crush the serpent. Good will win. Imagine him taking him to Exodus 12. The people are in slavery in Egypt, and, and the Pharaoh won't let them go. And so God just crushes Egypt with ten plagues, the tenth being the most severe, the death of the firstborn in the land. But he gave the people of Israel, God's people, the Old Testament church, a way out. Get a lamb without blemish. Slaughter it, sacrifice it, take its blood, cover your door. The angel of death is going to pass over. You thought that was about a lamb? It's about me. I, in the words of John the Baptist, am the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you read Exodus 12, if you don't see Jesus, you're missing Exodus 12. Maybe you took him to Psalm 2. You thought it was just the second Psalm in the hymn book. Why do the nations rage against the anointed one of God, the Son of God that they have to kiss or they're going to bend the knee in judgment? It's about me. It wasn't about no King David. It's about me, Jesus. I'm the true King David. Maybe he took them to Isaiah 53 to show them how Isaiah was just seeing a little glimpse of a, surf, a servant who was going to die for others. It's about Jesus. Or to use the words of Jesus in our passage, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer, to die. What I like about this is that the claims of Jesus... Make it so that none of us can be apathetic toward him, toward the gospel. There, there's no like, mm, Jesus is, he's all right. To use the words of Pastor Tim Keller again, either you'll have to kill Jesus or you'll have to crown him. But the one thing you can't do is say, what an interesting guy. His claims won't allow that type of answer. Might I add to Tim Keller's quote, his resurrection and the testimony of his appearances after he died and rose again won't let you make that type of answer. You have to kill Jesus or you need to crown him. We have the joy of bending the knee in humble submission and glad submission now or we will bend the knee in judgment to come. His resurrection won't allow that answer. But I think our passage isn't just about correcting the doubts of Cleopas and the other disciple. Not just about correcting the doubts of the disciples in the upper room or whatever room that they are in. Look at, with me at verse 21. This isn't just about doubts. We had hoped. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Our passage isn't just about doubts. Our passage is about expectations and hope. Our passage is about affections. We had hoped. What about Jesus did you hope but haven't received? I sure thought my life would be different. I'm a third of the way through, half of the way through. Maybe you're toward the end of it. I did not think it was going to go this way. What did you hope? What is that thing 
My finances are upside down and in disarray. I did not think I'd be here. I cannot get my health on track. What? I I didn't think I was going to be struggling with this. My marriage, I read every marriage book. I didn't think it was going to turn out this way. God, why did you give me this person or that person? My singleness, I, didn't, I certainly didn't think I'd be here, God. I've given you my life, and this is where I am? Man, I just, I love kids. I feel like my, my quiver is full, but can we, go to, can we go to full-time school in person all year round, maybe all night too? I didn't think it'd be like this. My job beats me down. I didn't think... I didn't think it was going to be like this. We had hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Jesus comes to that in your hopes and expectations, whether they're dashed or whether you're living your best life. He meets you where you are and says, it is me. Yes, your finances, yes, your health, yes, your marriage, yes, your singleness, yes, your kids, yes, your job. But if you have the dream finance and dream health and dream marriage and the dream kids and the dream job, but you don't have Jesus, you are worse off than you are now. If you have the worst of them all and have Jesus, you have everything. It's not an either or. It'd be nice to have a little bit of both. But Jesus is saying, it's me. Let me satisfy you. Let me meet you where you are. Let me lift your heart. Let me give you joy. Your health, your finances, your marriage, your singleness, your kids, your job ain't going to do it. Let me be to you everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. That's one of the reasons we go to the communion table each week. Because Jesus might be lovingly, tenderly, maybe even sternly calling us to repent of some some expectations and hopes that we have off. Our lack of contentment and why we're not actually happy with those examples I gave. Our hearts are off. Our affections, you're trying to put in those things instead of Jesus. Let's come to the table and tell Jesus. Repent of those things and let him be the center of our lives yet again. I wanted to talk a little bit about the table in our passage, but we don't have time for it. But I do want to just briefly mention, and maybe this will stir our hearts as we go to the table. You see that it's at a table they recognize Jesus, not because of the Bible study that was beforehand. Jesus takes, breaks, blesses, and gives them bread. You know where that formula came from? The feeding of the 5,000 and the Lord's Supper. And again, I can't prove this, but I'm wondering that the scales came off of their eyes God's providence allowed them to see because Jesus took, broke, blessed, and gave bread. And as he did, they saw holes in his hands. They saw holes in this man's wrist. And I'm giving it to you as spiritual food. Because I'm your wounded healer who died for you. I died for your doubts. I died for your misplaced and dashed hopes. I died to make you mine. Now let me be the center of your affections and the center of your life. The communion table is a meal for Christians. Not perfect ones, but honest ones. 
a time to come and meet with Jesus, whose scarborn hands are serving you bread and wine this morning. On the tray, we have red wine. 